Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, your host. At the Hill Country Institute, we're excited to have an ongoing conversation, bringing guests together with you to talk about interests and concerns of the body of Christ. We visit the life and works of giants of another day, such as C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. We like to spend time with people and ministries doing creative work to fight human trafficking, feed the poor, create quality art, be good stewards of the environment, and more, all with the heart and mind of Christ. We like to reach across lines of division in the body of Christ to draw people together and foster dialogue and mutual respect, all with the heart and mind of Christ. There's much good and important work today in the interface of theology and the arts and the way in which the body of Christ interacts with culture, creates culture, and relates through the arts. Our program today features Jeremy Begbie, one of the leading spokesmen and thought leaders about the role of arts in the Christian faith and the place of the Christian faith in the arts. Jeremy is the Thomas A. Langford Research Professor of Theology at Duke University and Director of Duke Initiatives in Theology and the Arts, which aim to demonstrate what theology can contribute to the arts and what the arts can contribute to theology. He teaches systematic theology and specializes in the interface between theology and the arts. His particular research interests are in the interplay between music and theology. He's also taught at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, Cambridge University, and Regent College in Vancouver. He's the author of a number of books, including Voice and Creation's Praise, Towards the Theology of the Arts, Theology, Music, and Time, and Resounding Truth, Christian Wisdom in the World of Music, which won the Christianity Today 2008 Book Award. We were privileged to do an interview with Jeremy Bigby and talk about the ways in which faith can influence art and art can influence our faith and how music helps us to understand the ways that God works. Formerly, we'd call that theology. Informally, we would just say helping us to understand how God works. Uh, Jeremy is a very thoughtful person, very creative, and very capable. And so it's a delight to uh, offer at this time our interview with Jeremy Begbie. Jeremy, thank you for being with us today on Hill Country Institute Live. Very good to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you, Jeremy. As a young person, you, you were drawn to a life in music, but something happened to draw you to a, to a second passion, if you will, theology. Would you tell us about that addition of interest or, or change of direction or combination? Well, up until the age of about 18 or 19, I had little interest in Christian things. I wasn't an atheist, but um, I saw no reason to do anything about Christianity, and I hadn't read the Bible and knew very little about what was in the Bible. My mother was a churchgoer, my father not really a regular one. But when I reached the age of about 18 or 19 as a student at Edinburgh University, I was introduced to a man called Alan Torrance, a young man whose father was a, theo- a theologian. And Alan suggested I go along to Edinburgh University and hear his father speak on theology. And I was so impressed by what I heard. I didn't really understand it on one level, but I was so impressed by his passion and his conviction and his very obvious faith and the difference it made to his life that I began to take Christianity seriously. And I began then to read the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, and I fell into 
I fell into faith uh, by the grace of God. And since then, I've really been trying to keep the two worlds, the worlds of music and the worlds of the gospel, uh, together in various ways. I see them as belonging together. Well, to, to fall in with the Torrance family was, uh, was providential, wasn't it? It certainly was. I mean, the Torrance family are a kind of huge dynasty of ministers, theologians, and doctors, actually, as a matter of fact, as well. Yes. And they had a wonderful way of communicating the gospel very clearly. But, but, but just as important, in James's case, he lived it out in his home. I've, I saw Christianity in action in a home. I saw an incredible generosity and gentleness. Uh, and it was, ju- it was just like a home I hadn't really seen before. Oh, it's a, that's, that's, a, that's the beauty of Christ when it, when it shines forth, isn't it? Another community that had a very big impact on me, along with these individuals, was a community of monks who were really Franciscans, and they lived outside Edinburgh, and they had a, a policy of open house in their community. So you would go along, and they would accept anyone who came to their door, really, and put up almost anybody, and you would find yourself with perhaps bishops or uh, uh, lecturers in theology, or academics, or painters, or sculptors, but also with uh, former drug addicts, uh, those who were just out of prison. And it really was, it showed a kind of Christian hospitality and a costliness of Christian living that I had not seen before, and had a, therefore a huge impact on the way I, I thought of Christianity. So, Jeremy, your your early life as a Christian in community seems to have impacted your writing and thinking about doing art in community, because that comes through in your writing and, and, and your talks. Uh, how, did, how did that early reflection or that early time uh, contribute to your thinking about doing art in community? Well, I suppose one of the commonest ways of understanding the artist, unfortunately, is as of a kind of lone, solitary genius uh, who's inspired all on their own and who produces art for people, yes, but they're not that worried whether the people like it or can understand it. And I've been kicking against that model of the artist. I think the artist is best seen always as a member of a community that they can trust, and that in some way their art ought to be benefiting a community, whether that community is the church or society at large. I think the artist needs to see themselves always as related to other people, and, and the best art comes out of good relationships. Yes, and, a, and an awareness of the of the culture too. Uh, you you talk about the difference between being connected, both in community and to what's going on around us, versus uh, art for art's sake. Uh, Definitely, I mean, all art, of course, does is related to culture, whether people acknowledge it or not. But art ought to be able to speak to the surrounding culture and draw on the surrounding culture, even if it might be quite critical of it. We can't bury our heads in the sand. I mean, the arts will reflect the culture that we're in in very profound ways, or it can reflect it in very profound ways. Very often, the arts are telling us deeper things about the culture than anything else. And very often, they're expressing people's very deepest longings, if one would listen. Yes, and, and it seems that the artist can be, you know, two, two of, the, of the offices of Christ. You can be both a comforter with your art, and you can be prophetic. And, and, yes. and draw that edge out in the church. I think one, the artist also can be a priest in the sense that, and you have to be careful of this word, 
but in the sense that it's our job to listen to the cries of people and to encapsulate them and concentrate them in art. In other words, sometimes art will speak for people in ways that nothing else can. If you're at a funeral service, for instance, very often it's a key hymn or a bit of music or something that says what the congregation want to say. And we, we need to know what, uh, how art can do that. And when it's doing that, it's, it's acting in a priest-like way. It's representing the people. Yes. With, um, with your varied interest, uh, you, you on the one hand are a theologian, on the other hand you're an artist. You're, you're in, a, in a sense a connector, a connector of ideas. How does, how does that inform both your theology and your art? Well, I mean, that's a very good word, Larry. I, am, I do try to be a connector. I am a, a practicing musician and a music theorist, I suppose, as well. But I'm also a theologian who adores the language of the Church and the doctrines of the Church. And my passion, really, is to bring these two together. I think it's very sad when Christian musicians feel that the Church has left them behind and, or feels that the language of theology is irrelevant and has had nothing to do with, with their music. My One of my callings, I think, is to take musicians and artists into the world of theology and show them that the ideas being tackled there, uh, the questions being asked, are thrilling ones with massive impact for their work as artists. And they're not just um, uh, correctors. Doctrine is not just telling you everything you can't do. Most of all, doctrine is telling you what you can do. It's, it's opening up fantastic visions of God and Christ and what's possible with God and Christ. So that I, want to, I want to keep those worlds together, and um, it saddens me when one world forgets the others, when theologians and the, and the Church forget the artists, and when the artists forget theologians and the Church. Yes, it, it seems that more often we'll, we'll have a theological understanding of art, but how does art inform our understanding of theology? Well, I've been working fair amount about that in, in recent years because I found that music, and, and that's my particular art form, has extraordinary powers to help us rethink a lot of things in Christian faith. So, for instance, when it comes to the Trinity and a three-note chord, um, the way we hear a three-note chord, I think, tells us a great deal about how we might be thinking of the Trinity. If you see three different colors, it's very hard to put them in the, spa- in the same space and see them still as three colors. You know, in the world we see, we can't have different things occupying the same space and see them as different. Uh, they're mutually exclusive, or else they merge into something else, into a third color. But in the world we hear, we can have two or more sounds occupy the same space that we hear. And what's more, these sounds can resonate with each other. They can set each other off. And I found this a very powerful way of speaking of the Trinity and of those passages in John's Gospel, for instance, when we read of the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father. That's a very hard thing to draw, but it's actually quite easy to hear when you hear one tone or one note through another. Sounds interpenetrate heard experience in a way that they don't in our visual experience. And so I found <clears throat> through music, through musical perception, through just very simple business of strumming a chord and listening to it, a whole, a whole um, well, great vistas of theology suddenly open out to us. And it's my conviction that a lot of the church's trouble 
with the Trinity, the, the troubles we've had with the doctrine of the Trinity, has been because we've over-relied on our eyes. Now, that's an example of music benefiting theology, music helping us think that is more biblical. Well, and, and then there's the equilibrium, tension, resolution. That's a, that's a part of psychology. It's a part of music. And it's a part of our understanding of theology. How do you, how do you put those pieces together? Indeed. Well, many, many pieces, many songs are arranged according to a scheme where you begin perhaps in a home key, say in C major, and after a little you move to another key or you use another chord like E minor or something like that. And eventually, though, after a bit, you're going to come back to C major. In other words, you start with an equilibrium, something that you can recognize as home, and you move away, that's the tension, and then you return, um, which is the restoration, the restoring <coughs> of the home, home away and home again. That pattern of starting somewhere, going away and returning, <coughs> excuse me, that pattern is very basic to the way that music operates, and in the way actually a lot of literature operates as well. And in music, it operates in all sorts of ways. It operates in harmony, in rhythm, in meter, in tone, attack, all sorts of things. It's just very basic. It's, it's the kind of engine, it's down there in the engine room of virtually all the music that we listen to, certainly in the West. And I see in that and patterns that are also there in the gospel. I mean, uh, creation, followed by fall and redemption, or we think of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, son who begins at home and who insults his father, leaves home, goes away, and then returns. Uh, and Jesus' own life, who, you know, he comes from heaven, he, he immerses himself in the tension of the world, but he's raised from the dead, home away and home again. It's the same pattern. And music has all sorts of ways of helping us recognize that pattern and understanding it as well. And the marvelous thing is it's built in to virtually all the hymns and the songs that we actually sing. Well, and and in music, you have waves, large waves, small waves within large waves. You've got dissonance being resolved, and, and, and you've got all these things going on. And, and it seems like that's just an extension of how God works, both, both in Scripture and in our lives today. That's right. Uh, it's, it's another pattern I found in music, that patterns of tension and resolution work not in straight lines, but in waves, so that you might have one wave which is increasing in tension, uh, uh, perhaps in the harmony of the piece, and you have another which is resolving attention, perhaps in rhythm. And these things are going on at the same time, so that in order to understand a piece of music or enjoy a piece of music, you're actually having to think on many levels simultaneously. And that, I think, has enormous potential for helping us understand how we understand Christian hope, where you have to think in terms of big waves as well as small waves. And sometimes when there seems to be a tension increasing on one level, you've got to believe that a resolution is being worked out on another level at the same time. God works in uh, not just mysterious ways, but in mysterious waves. And I think that's built into the way that uh, the Bible is written. In, in music and in, and in our lives and in Scripture, there's, there's often a time of quiet, a time of silence, or a time of waiting. How does, how does that factor into to your thinking? Well, I think in a great deal of music that is valuable to us, um, a great deal of music makes us wait for a resolution. So the resolution, the resolving, the returning home may happen very quickly in music, but sometimes it's greatly extended. It can last many minutes before you get home. 
And what that does for you is it shows you that the, the, the passage of waiting is itself enriching and not empty. It's not void. Um, you, you stay with the music until the resolution. Music teaches us to wait, amongst other things, or at least a lot of it does. Sadly, a lot of Christian music doesn't. It just get, gives you the, the resolution straight away. But there's lots of music. I mean, John Coltrane's Love Supreme would be a good example, which makes you wait for that resolution. And so you're actually being taught something about patience and about waiting. Now, in the Christian faith, we've, got, we've simply got to learn that because resolutions don't come uh, very quickly have to wait for a resolution. Here we are in a world where we've got a promise of new creation. We've got a promise of heaven. We've got a promise of life after death. But, but there's a lot of waiting. And the world seems pretty rough in between times. So we're given a model in music and, uh, and also an experience of enriching waiting. Uh, a great deal of life is just about waiting when nothing much seems to be going on. And music has a lot to tell us about that. You know, in a, in a corollary to waiting, it, it seems that you, you emphasize the need for us both as theologians and as artists to have a sense of tradition, to have something yes. to build on. Uh, talk about the importance of tradition, if you would. Sure. It's easy to think that if you're going to be original and novel, you've got to try to escape tradition. You've got to try to escape the music of the past or escape uh, the, the wisdom of the past in some way, because that way you can be truly original. When in fact, it, the opposite is the true. The way you're original is to, is to inhabit a tradition. You've got to, get, you've got to be apprentice. When you're apprentice, an apprentice to a craft, you learn um, habits. You learn, the, you learn the wisdom of your teachers. You, you sit inside a whole tradition a way of doing things. I'm, I make violins um, myself. I'm part of a workshop that makes violins, and I've been an apprentice for three years now That's to th three or four violin makers. And I've learned a huge amount about listening to a tradition. Now, only when you've done that, when you've learned the disciplines, can you really be original? Uh, only when a poet has learned how to construct meter and rhyme, how to build a sonnet, how to use metaphors, only then can they be original. Only then can they speak to their time and place in a way that's fresh. So, and, of course, that's very, very built into the biblical tradition. All the writers of the Bible belong to the Jewish tradition, and they know that tradition, and they're inside it. That doesn't mean God can never do a new thing. You don't have to be trapped within tradition, but you have to work from with it in order that you can in order that you can apply it to the world in which we're living. Certainly. Well, and, and that, this, this may be a jump, but it, it seems to me that tradition could be a lot like the bass line in a jazz or blues piece. Yes, You've yes, got indeed. this bass, and then you've got improvisa improvisation going on. Yeah, which is a very good metaphor. For, I think that's what we're called to improvise on the tradition. Great and, jazz players, I was saying, um, okay. work with perhaps a a 12-bar or 24-bar blues, and uh, they, they don't try to escape it. They sit inside it. But from sitting inside it, then they improvise very, very fully and in a way that's very unpredictable. And, and Christians, of course, have to do that. If you think about just the, the use of the Bible alone, the Bible does not give us instructions about a lot of modern ethical issues at present. 
you know, it doesn't tell us much about abortion, for instance, or about euthanasia or these things. So what we have to do is we have to get inside what it is saying, inside the tradition, uh, carefully, and then we have to apply what we have learned from the Bible in, in every new situation that we find ourselves in. But the Bible is not going to spell out the improvisation. The thing is that the Holy Spirit through us really is the improviser, enabling us to do the right thing at the right time. Well, I, was, I was so excited to read about improvising in, in your work because this the, the, the battle of free will versus sovereignty, there's, there's no resolution. And, and yet the imp, improvising of God is, is a sense of a reacting and a leading and finally working things out the way he wants them to be worked out. And, exactly. Uh, yep, very much so. And I, I really thank you for that for that insight and that way of putting it. It was so helpful to me. If you want to talk more about that, I would love well, to hear no, more. Well, no, simply, that, I mean, I think we think of the we must think of the Holy Spirit as the improviser. Of course, improvisation can just sound like anything goes. It can sound just like arbitrary, but that's not what we mean. <clears throat> the improviser is consistent, but unpredictable. So the Holy Spirit will never do anything that's just arbitrary or freakish or makes no sense. But nevertheless, the Spirit is also the one who, who surprises, who does the new thing, who does the thing which wasn't predicted. And, uh, and it's really that dynamic that we need in the Church. So the Church can't simply repeat what it's always done in the past. Yeah. We look to the Spirit to lead us and guide us so it is clear what to do. Um, the Spirit, uh, another way I put it, is both faithful and the Spirit does the new thing. The Spirit is faithful to what's been revealed in Scripture and supremely in Jesus Christ. The Spirit is not arbitrary. The Spirit is faithful. The Spirit is faithful to Christ and faithful to Scripture. But the Spirit also does new things and surprising things that are consistent with what's in Scripture, but which have not yet been done and which are not always predictable. And it's that interplay that makes the Christian life exciting. So for someone who's not a Christian, who sees God as, as uh, arbitrary, perhaps very ordered, and they're somewhat un- disordered or uh, unordered in their life, perhaps that gives them a vision of God that's bigger than what they had expected. Very much so. Okay. God is not a God who simply does exactly the same thing over and over again, but nor is God arbitrary and utterly unpredictable and um, freakish. Um, God is faithful and consistent, and yet constantly surprising. And that makes the Christian life a good deal more attractive to many people than they might at first think. Yes. Well, um, speaking of the people, I've I've read that the number of people interested in spiritual things has has increased dramatically, and and there's a corresponding increase in, in interest in music. And looking at that and looking at the life of the church, uh, how, how important is music in the life of the church and, and in, our, in our outreach, particularly to millennials? Well, I think music is very important. Okay. In a typical church service, about 50% of the, of the service is music. And um, we've simply just got to reckon with that, and that music is being used a great deal in Christian worship. But more than that, music is very, very widely used in culture at large, more than ever before, particularly through pod and through headphones and through MP3 players, 
So for many people, it's the swim in which they're seeing, it's the swimming, and we just, we just need to come to terms with that. The challenge then is for the church to use music wisely and not just baptize everything that happens to be around. But we need to aware, be aware with young people particularly how they are using music and what kind of music is affecting them and, and what kind of music could affect them for the gospel. Yes. Well, and I, I think of the jazz music again and how that's, that's been on the outside of the church in so many ways. And yet you've got Duke Ellington with his, with his Christo Redemptor and his sacred concerts. And Indeed. That, yeah, and that touched people in a certain way. So we need to be sensitive to that, don't we? Indeed. I mean, that's a good example of, of most definitely a spiritual current in one of the great jazz musicians of the age. But there are lots of all sorts of other things going on in the wider popular musical world, which, if not fully Christian, at least point in a spiritual or theologically interested way. And, and we need to be alert to those. We need to be alert to those and pick up on them whenever we can. It's no good just pushing all that um, stuff aside. So, so yes, I th- it's a great opportunity for the Church in its mission and outreach. Well, Jeremy, thinking of our of our of a vision, when you were here for the Transforming Culture Symposium, you talked about your vision for the church fifty years out, and a few years have passed since then. What are your hopes and vision for the church and the arts, and how does the the Duke Initiative and in theology and the arts contribute to that vision? Well, I mean, at the very least, my vision is for a much more imaginative use of the arts in all aspects of the Church's mission and witness. Uh, many churches work with a, a very narrow spectrum of whether it's music, art, uh, visual art, or whatever. Uh, the spectra are always much wider than we think. I think that's the first thing. Uh, training of leaders is very, very important, and I think we need to be training church leaders as well, as well as helping train pastors um, to understand why the arts are so important, how they work, and how they could be used more effectively. So training, especially training of of leaders, is crucial. And then, of course, we need to encourage artists directly. The Church needs to be sponsoring artists to, um, to develop art that can speak to our age, that can tap into our local culture, and can give people a new vision. And supremely, that's the vision of the new creation that Christ has promised. So the Church is patron again. Indeed. It ought to be a major patron of the arts, and without any apology at all. Well, I love what Robert Nicolosi said at the Transforming Culture Conference, that all of us are called to either be artists, pastors, or to support the artist. So Absolutely. Should, that's what I'm saying. We should get after whichever one we belong in, don't we? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> but there's something for us all to do. Yes, indeed. Well, Jeremy, is there anything else that we, we haven't touched on that you might like to mention? No, I think you've done incredibly well, and uh, particularly with the technological difficulties. <laughs> Thank you for your questions. <laughs> Well, it's it's been a delight to to read your works and 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 to talk with you. I, I would I would really commend uh, "Voicing Creation's Praise" mm-hmm. towards the theology of the arts by Jeremy Begbie. If you're interested in, in developing uh, your own understanding of the theology of the arts, the third section where he really develops a Christian view uh, to me is is uh, is just spot on and and something that I would uh, encourage people to read. So the, the other thi- the other thing is a book called "Resounding Truth." 
which is written for a audience and which really outlines the way I see a Christian approach to music. Resounding Truth, Baker, Baker Press. Yes, it's part of the Engaging Culture series. It's Resounding Truth, Christian Wisdom in the World of Music. Also terrific. Well, Jeremy, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. If you are listening today and would like for programs like this to continue dealing with faith and culture and for our programs to continue in conferences and other opportunities with web resources, please consider supporting the Hill Country Institute. Tax-deductible donations can be processed through our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, and there are special incentives for donations. If you're interested in sponsoring this program, please contact us through the website. Once again, thank you for being with us. This is Larry Leninschmidt, your host, Hill Country Institute Live, exploring Christ and culture. Be blessed.